Welcome to Emotion Well, EFR's podcast about all things related to emotional wellness. I'm Johanna Dunlevy, the wellness manager for Employee and Family Resources, also known as EFR, and I'm the host of our podcast. As an FYI, EFR is located in Des Moines, Iowa, and we are Iowa's first employee assistance program and provide a variety of services you can learn more about at www.efr.org. I am here with Angie Chaplin, who has a business called Mindful Leadership. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so I don't know you personally. We just met a few moments ago, but I've been following you on LinkedIn for several months, and recently I saw you post a video from Hello, Iowa. Uh, You were on a segment, and you were talking about your experiences with substance use disorder and your journey through recovery, and so I thought that you would be really interesting to have on the show, and I'm very honored that you accepted the invitation. So thank you for, for being on Emotion Well. Thank you. Happy to walk through that with you. Yeah, so introduce yourself to our listeners and, and kind of share as much or as little as you'd like and then we'll get the conversation really started. Yes, absolutely. I have lived my entire life in Iowa, so born and raised in various parts of the state from being born and grew up in Decorah, Iowa to attending college in Northwest Iowa. I'm from Lansing, Iowa. I know Lansing, Iowa. Yes. This is so exciting. So my humble (laughs) beginnings in the northeast quadrant of the state and then went to undergraduate school at Buena Vista University in Storm Lake, raised my family in Waverly, and had some life changes occur while raising my family. And that is really a bookend of the before and after that we'll we'll dive a little bit deeper into. But then um, spent a couple of years in Dubuque and Cedar Rapids and now live Uh, where it feels most like home, and that for me is Iowa City. I do a lot of work here in central Iowa, have family members, my son and my niece is here in central Iowa, so it's nice to have multiple communities where I can consider myself a a member. Yeah, well, you really have lived kind of everywhere in the state. I don't think you've lived in the the southwest corner though not quite southwest or southeast right right (laughs) so central yes i-80 and above is my territory yeah so very cool well i feel like i don't encounter a lot of people from northeast iowa Mm -hmm. uh, so i get very excited when i (laughs) when i can make that connection glad to do that uh okay so when i saw you on hello iowa it was a very short segment but it really piqued my interest because you were talking about alcohol and alcohol awareness i think it probably ran in april which is alcohol awareness month And I'm just curious, you know, for you to share your story because I think alcohol is so ingrained in our culture. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a way that people celebrate. It's a people. It's a way that people uh, console each other. Um, It's just part of you know everyday life, and it's very normalized. But I also think that there's a side to drinking that a lot of people don't understand if they've never experienced it or Mm -hmm. witnessed someone experience it. And so I just want to unpack all that and whatever you're comfortable sharing. But kind of give us. uh, You start your story where you where you're comfortable sharing it. Sure. And then we'll just, I'm sure, have a lot, well, a lot to talk about. Right. And, and you mentioned it from the beginning, how prevalent alcohol is in our society. It was not prevalent in my personal society really until college. In fact, I didn't have my first drink of alcohol until college. Okay. So it wasn't that I grew up in a household or that I had those types of factors coming into play For me, I was considered, I suppose, a normal college drinker. Um, It wasn't until my 40s, after having a family and after adulting and after 
job loss and job transition that I realized I did not have an understanding of what it meant to cope. Mm -hmm. That is where I turned to alcohol. So around 2010, I lost a job that I had connected my identity to. It had been a position that I considered a dream job. I had worked there for a decade and they went through some leadership changes and I was, my position was eliminated. So that was a significant loss for me. I had the loss of a good friend who had um, lost her battle with cancer. Um, my marriage and that relationship was beginning to deteriorate and it became this perfect storm, so to speak, of ingredients that each on their own, I wasn't well equipped to manage. Because alcohol is so prevalent, it seemed like at first, I'll wind down with a nightly glass of wine. Right. And soon, that winding down starts sooner in the day and takes more than one nightly glass of wine. Right. That became quickly a slippery slope into what we now refer to as alcohol use disorder, alcohol addiction, um, problematic use of alcohol, to the point that um, it, it's, it damaged relationships with my then spouse, with whom I'm, I'm now divorced, with my children, with whom I'm now fully reconciled and, and have excellent relationships, with my parents, with other family members, led to job loss. So each opportunity to make a step forward, it felt like I would continue to face obstacles that I would return to alcohol because I had no other coping skills. And the beginning of the worst started uh, around 2018, uh, living in Waverly at the time. I was given an opportunity to relocate to Dubuque. I had, my oldest son was in college. My youngest son was a senior in high school. And so the timing wasn't ideal, it seemed like the perfect moment to, quote, start over. Mm -hmm. Move to a community where I didn't know anybody to a job in a new industry. I would have a clean slate. I could get rid of all this baggage that I have accumulated. So my intention was positive. The reality was very much the opposite. Yeah. Because I was isolating, because I didn't know anybody, so I did not have a support system. The job was not as good in practice as it looked on paper. And that's when the, uh, the serious medical conditions started. And so when you think about you know, all those things that you just shared are significant life events, you know, changing, losing a job, making a career change, losing a friend, a relationship unraveling and I feel like in all of those scenarios a thing that people often do to comfort is let's go have a drink right. um, you know how, let's go talk about it over you know drinks let's right. go to happy hour let's have dinner and I, I just think that's part of where it becomes ingrained in our culture um, so you mentioned and, and this is something that I want to talk about because I think uh, I've heard it called pulling a geographic mm -hmm. uh, where you think that a new set of circumstances whether it's a home a job a partner are going to change you right um, and that's where I addiction you know your addiction is smarter than you absolutely and I was listening to a different podcast uh, 
and it wasn't even about addiction, but a woman had shared that she lost her father to uh, alcoholism and that he was the smartest man she knew, but his addiction was smarter. And it's like that perfectly captures it because your your addiction is always a step ahead of you, right? right? right. And so how through from kind of 2010 to 2018, um, is 2018 when you kind of had the moment where you're like, okay, I'm drinking maybe too much or I'm using this as a coping mechanism or did it all just kind of become like so normal, like normalized in your life that you didn't really have that aha moment until something big happened? It's both and. I knew it was problematic, but I, I, first of all, didn't know what to do about it. Secondly, I didn't think it was as problematic as everybody else told me. So my first hospitalization was in December of 2018. Okay. And that was diagnosed as acute pancreatitis. Okay. Not wanting to know what causes acute pancreatitis, I didn't choose to equate the fact that it was excess alcohol use that was creating acute pancreatitis. So that was the first, oh wow, I really should do something. And when I got out of the hospital, of course, all the well-meaning friends and family and support systems refer individuals like myself to AA because it's the most well-known treatment program outside of rehab or something more clinically uh, Mm -hmm. prescribed. It's peer support, and you're looking for that validation that other people are experiencing this too, what has worked for them. Right, right. And as as successful as AA is for many, many people, I was not one of them. Okay. When I would attend AA meetings, because I come from an HR background – and organizational development and leadership development and being very strengths-based, I do not believe that I was powerless. I believe that alcohol buried my power. Okay. Yet I believe it was always there. So... So step one didn't work for you. Step one did not work for me. (laughs) Because I could not say and stand firm in my own belief system... I was powerless. It wasn't the it wasn't the spirituality of it. I'm I was raised Catholic, so the 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 higher power, the the spiritual component, was not the obstacle for me. It was saying I'm powerless, because that was counterintuitive in some way, and so I would go to AA. I also do not um, support labels of any kind. So like alcoholic. Correct. Gotcha. I would not say I am Angie and I am an alcoholic because I didn't believe that. I believe that what we call ourselves is what we believe about ourselves. And even though I understood cognitively what that label meant, I choose not to identify with labels. So I'd go to AA. I wouldn't say I was an alcoholic. I wouldn't say I was powerless. I would leave AA meetings with guilt and shame on top of guilt and shame because here I was struggling with other people who were struggling, but yet I didn't really belong with them. And so I felt guilty. I felt like I'm so bad that I can't even follow AA. Mm -hmm. 
So there was an added layer of confusion for myself. But to have that level of self-awareness, mm. that's really impressive. I don't think a lot of people could could go there. I think, you know, you might feel that or believe that, but you wouldn't connect the dots between, like, what you said, I'm not powerless over alcohol. Alcohol mm-hmm. buried my power. Right, right. I think in those, you know, the, the 2018, 2019 days, what we know now about the brain science and then the neuroplasticity and all of that, back then, I think were inklings. I, I think that a part of me knew, knew that, but yet I couldn't quite articulate what that meant. I didn't know what cognitive dissonance was. Right. So I didn't know that I was, you know, my, my heart and soul were feeling one thing, but the science of addiction was tricking my brain to believe something right. else. So moving to Dubuque, trying to do the, the pulling the geographic, you know, just further set me down that, that shame spiral, that really self-hatred spiral, spiral, trying to find solutions to problems that seem to be only something alcohol could help me work through. Yeah. So I'm a member of Al-Anon. Okay. And the program has worked really well for me. And so I think it's interesting for people to think about, you know, if if you know someone or love someone or live with someone that has a substance use disorder, Mm -hmm. um, like they they call alcoholism a family disease. And they don't mean genetics that, you know, you're predisposed to it because maybe you have a family member. I mean, that is true by science, but it's, you know, people in the family start to exhibit a lot of the same behaviors. And so in my um, set of circumstances, I was living with someone who had alcohol use disorder and I was trying to control Mm. his drinking. And I truly was powerless over his drinking and in any of his life choices. Right. Um, and so for me, Al-Anon worked, and I was hesitant to go because of the higher power okay. concept. Okay. I was like, turn my life over, like turn my <laughs> will and my life over to a higher power. Sure. But it works for me, right? right. And right. so I think any kind of program, so if you're listening and you you know think you have alcohol use disorder or you know someone who does and your life has been affected by it, mm-hmm. You might have to try a lot of things Absolutely. to find what's going to work for you. Because yes. I never in my life would have thought that Al-Anon would have been the program for me. I resisted it for so long. And I I tell this to people. I went really with the goal to find out what other people were doing to get their loved ones to stop drinking. Okay. Because I was going to do that too. Mm-hmm. It's crazy making. I know. And I, know. I was pulling geographics. Sure. And so I think it's important for people listening to know that you might not have alcohol use disorder. Mm-hmm but you could be affected by it right. in so many of the same ways that, yes. that the person living with it is. So yes. Yes. Um, so you were hospitalized in 2018. Right, for the first time. For the first time. So there were multiple there, hospitalizations. Oh, yes, there were a total of five. Oh, it wow. was okay. the fifth hospitalization in February of 2020. So December of 18 to February of 2020. Yes, I was hospitalized oh, wow. five okay. times. So just over a year. Year, yeah. Or almost. A little bit, oh, I, yeah. yeah, 18 months-ish. Oh, wow. Right. And each hospitalization would become more serious. Okay. So it started with the uh, acute pancreatitis and, of course, continued. Would I would continue to drink after getting out of the hospital, and it would then affect my liver. It would affect the levels of sodium in my blood mm-hmm. and mess up 
all the electrolytes. It, it wrecks havoc on every major functioning system in our bodies. When I was hospitalized in February of 2020, I was admitted in critical condition. I had been drinking continuously. I had lost a job, again, being isolated, so I was without a support system. The recommended treatment protocol of go to an AA meeting hadn't been successful, and I kept doing what I had always done, but yet didn't know that there were other solutions out there. In the hospital, I was in intensive care for uh, three days. I don't remember a lot of it, and it was the level of sodium in my blood that was so dangerous, dangerously low that I was in intensive care and critical care. Once that was stabilized, I start having more, I think, concrete memories and have talked with my medical providers and psychiatrists about some of some of those experiences as well. But I, I had reached the point of agitation that I was ripping out my IVs. Oh, wow. So I was physically restrained to the hospital bed. Just things about me that I understand were the product of the addiction. Mm -hmm. That's the part that thankfully that hospitalization was the step forward because it was clear to me based on the doctor's comment um, as I was getting out of the hospital, next time you might not be on this side of the hospital bed, yeah. meaning you might not be getting right. out. So it was clearly presented as a life or death decision because I had, I had progressed physically to the point of deterioration where there might not be a next time and come out in a positive manner. And so this was, you were in your 40s or 50s when? I was 49. 49, okay. Yes. And you'd only been really drinking heavily for about 10 years. Correct. So yes. the, yeah, the damage was really adding up. Right. Um, are right. you comfortable sharing like the volume you were drinking? Yes, absolutely. Okay. That's been one of my, my um, promises to myself is that because I have a voice, because I've experienced what I've experienced, I am fully transparent about the good, the bad, the ugly. Yeah. Because it was my own ignorance of not hearing other people or listening to other mm -hmm. people that I think kept me in the dark for so long. So when I started, it was a glass of wine. Then it became a bottle of wine. Then it became two bottles of wine. Then I would get hospitalized and I would think, well, I'm not the problem, the wine is the problem. So I would switch from wine to hard liquor. So drinking vodka out of the bottle, drinking whiskey out of the bottle, and another hospitalization. And then I'd think, oh, well, hard liquor, of course I'm not gonna right. do that. I'll go to beer. And it would be cases of beer, plural cases of beer a day. And I, that, that ultimately is, all the things add up, right? right. Uh, and so the hyponatremia was the diagnosis of, of dangerously low blood sodium that was the, the hospitalization at that point. Yeah. Um, and, and it was from there um, that, and of course it reinforces, it doesn't matter what we're drinking, it's alcohol. Right. And if an alcoholic wants to find themselves at the end of that rope, it, they'll find whatever. Right 
tools they need to get there. But I think your example of, well, it must be the wine's fault. It must be right. liquors, you know, higher alcohol concentration right. per volume. Like, right. it, that is the addiction outsmarting you. You know, it is telling you to do things differently because yes. it's winning, you know. Right. So how did you come to uh, – so in 2020, you had your final hospitalization. Yep. Was this before COVID? This was before COVID. Okay. So, so talk so about February that. February of 2020, when released from the hospital, I entered an intensive outpatient treatment program. So that meant I would I was not in rehab, so to speak, but I would go to a counseling center, and this was hospital-based in Dubuque, and I would participate in nine hours per week of face-to-face group therapy and substance abuse counseling and meet with a psychologist. I was all in. I was doing all the things. We were journaling. Um, I I, I wasn't going to AA meetings, but AA speakers would come in and and I was doing my own research and, and looking for as many sobriety supportive resources as I possibly could. 40 days into my sobriety, COVID put a halt to all in-person services. Huge crossroads for me because not everything that I had built my newfound sobriety on was face-to-face delivery. Once that safety net was taken away, it was either I look within for these resources or I start searching without or you know without what i've been currently using so it became a combination of both what i did was remember thankfully my studies in leadership that i had done in 2004 during graduate school and that degree is in leadership development but instead of taking these leadership practices and principles within the context of a work workplace, I turned them inward and looked at how do I use these practices to lead myself first, to lead myself further away from alcohol, mm-hmm. lead myself toward the type of person and mom and professional and leader that I knew I could become. That was the same time that through my own research, I found programs like Smart Recovery. I had never heard of Smart Recovery. I haven't heard of it either. It's been around since the 1990s and is continuing to grow in terms of awareness and application and involvement in meetings. It is a behavioral-based framework to life beyond addiction. My grad studies looked at the evidence-based practices around leadership. Smart Recovery looks at the evidence-based practices around behavioral change. So to this point, everything that I have used as tools are evidence-based, meaning it's not it's grounded in right. science, right? It's it's proven effective and it's applicable, meaning it's about behavior. So I take these practices and tools and I apply them to what I do differently that keeps me sober, that keeps me living a life beyond alcohol use disorder. So did you, and I, 
I mean, I've read a little bit about you and I've, you know, I follow you on LinkedIn. I feel like I encountered some information that you established your five, was it your five core values? Yes. And that none of them aligned with alcohol or drinking, right? Are you comfortable sharing your values? Yes. Yes. My five core values are integrity, curiosity, clarity, connection, and love. Each of those values starts with me. So when I use the word love, it's love for myself. Mm -hmm. That's what I lacked for the decade plus that I was in active addiction. Because I didn't know how to deal with that lack of self-love, I turned to alcohol and pretended that everything was okay. So whether it's numbing or whether it's escapism or whether it's simply inabilities to deal with heavy stuff that's happening in life those were the tools that I was be able uh, that I was able to say with these core values if I'm living a life of integrity then I'm doing and saying things that are in alignment and for me that carries forward through all of the other values curiosity comes in on a daily basis and it's really knowing that there are multiple pathways to recovery, right? For so long, it was one way. And for some people, that one way of 12 steps works. They might, get, they might get lucky and the first thing they try is what works for yes, them. Yes, yeah. absolutely. However, that is not typical. Typically, it takes someone exposure to multiple resources. What's appreciative about Smart Recovery is it's not a replacement for a 12-step, it's a complement. So it doesn't compete with any other support pathway or recovery service available. It complements. That integrated approach is what I see and what organizations, I'm sure EFR is, is in that as the customization that needs to take place, that there really is no one way to do this right. Right. Just like anything in health and well-being. Correct. You know, yeah. one size does not fit all. Exactly. And so no matter what your health goals are, what outcomes you want to see, it's not going to work the same from one person to the next. Right. Um, when you talk about integrity, I'm just curious, did you, I'm guessing for a long time you tried to hide you know, how much you were drinking right. and how often you were drinking from right. family and close friends, mm-hmm. your employer. Uh, did you believe that that was working? Yes, okay. I did. I would hide bottles and cans and jugs all over my house, thinking, I am so smart, they will never find yeah. this. And thankfully, I have a very close relationship with my family, including my children, and we talk about the fact that what the lies that alcohol tells Mm -hmm. us or the lies that alcohol told me that I then told my kids hoping that they would be fooled as well and it really 
it, it damages individuals and it damages families and it damages relationships. Which is why it's a family disease. Correct. Right? Uh, what about conversations with your sons? You said one is in college and one is out of college, so right. they're both young they're in both, their 20s. They're both over the drinking age. Okay. They're both 21. So what yeah, kind of conversations you know, do you have with them about maybe their predisposition to addiction? Because we know that that is a fact, that if you have a family member, especially a parent, that has any kind of substance use disorder, you have an increased risk. Yes. Um, but also the environmental aspect mm-hmm. of it, you know, and it's so ingrained in culture, especially college culture. Right. Um, what kind of conversations do you have with them and are they receptive to those? Yes. They have seen both sides of it, right? They have seen a mother who was literally killing herself with alcohol. They have seen a woman who has recreated herself, rediscovering life beyond alcohol. They have levels of emotional awareness and emotional intelligence that I did not have at their age. That I feel is a benefit because I've been able to talk with them about having healthy coping skills. So when crap happens, you don't think, oh my gosh, I I can't deal with this, I'm gonna ignore it for a while. They know what happens when you try to shove things to the side they are able to um to view to view alcohol for what it is it's a poison i mean it's toxic right that's that's the that's the chemical makeup of alcohol they understand that uh, it's used as a as a solution in many situations they're in college situations they're in workplace situations they drink responsibly they they are making what I consider to be healthy adult choices because of their experiences. That's really that's really exciting to hear because I think it could go in so many different directions. Right. And because you've been honest and open and you've had those conversations, right. they've been able to make the choices that are putting them in the place they are, which is at this point right. safe and, and yeah. healthy. We also talk about how awkward it is. To, for, to not drink? To, to talk or about to talk the fact about it, yeah. that their mom is sober. And they don't hide that, but it's also not the opening line when yeah. you meet somebody new. You know, well, that's another thing I wanted to talk to you about because how so? How did you kind of ease back into social settings and social life, being a sober person? Because I think that that is a big struggle for a lot of people, and even. So I don't drink alcohol anymore, and it's partly because I have a genetic predisposition to it and because of the experiences I lived through um, within the last few years. And I just decided it wasn't really adding any value to my life. Mm -hmm. I don't need this to enjoy life, have fun, feel fulfilled. I'm just not going to drink it. It is very awkward for other people, more awkward for other people than me when I'm sitting down to dinner or, you know, hey, do you want to go to happy hour? I'm like, yeah, I mean, I'll meet you, but I'm not going to drink. I'll, you know, or if I, I'm not going to say that, but I'll just order something that's non-alcoholic. And I feel like people just don't know what to do with that. Yeah. Like, you know, what's going on? You know, so how, how is that for you? How was it for you? And how is it now? That is where COVID was a silver lining because people weren't going out. Oh, that's true. So in a way, the timing was perfect. Right, right. So I was I was solidly sober when people started getting back together in real life. The area where I felt the greatest angst was the fact that my son is an Iowa Hawkeye football player. 
Iowa Hawkeye game days oh, are yeah. tailgating. Of course. You start drinking in the morning. I that's, mean, it's, yeah. That's right. And when I moved to Iowa City, really when my son became a member of the football team, I already started telling myself stories of not being included mm-hmm. or not feeling that I belong or being shunned. Those were all stories I was telling myself around belonging and inclusion for an individual who's single and sober and an Iowa football mom. So right. there were there were a lot of my own limiting beliefs mm-hmm. that I had to work through. It has been phenomenal. I drink non-alcohol beer. So I drink, I just drink differently. I drink right. I drink something different. So with our tailgates, everyone brings their own beverages. Everyone knows Angie has the cooler of the non-elk stuff. So if kids come, I have the lemonade. I have, <laughs> yeah. I, I, for, for whatever reason. Yeah. And there's many reasons why people choose not to drink. Absolutely. It's 80 degrees on a Saturday in Kinnick Stadium. Some people just choose not to feel like crap <laughs> yeah. by drinking alcohol. Yeah. And that's totally okay. Yeah. I am welcomed. I have many of good family friends with other football parents. It was not at all the story that I was telling myself. Right. Alcohol is a very small piece of tailgating, mm-hmm. although what we see and what others experience might tell a different story. Yeah, and I think it just goes back to the culture. We were talking earlier um, when we were preparing for this episode how there's something called, is it mom water? Mom water, and really? it's uh, vodka that is infused with, you know, fruit, and oh. it's wow. called mom water. And, okay. You know, but when you think about it, there is that culture around mom wine, yep. and, you yep. know, now there's mom water, but it's really wow. vodka. And so, and I know in the past when I've tried to find, you know, birthday gifts or Father's Day gifts, so many of them are related to alcohol, yeah. and it, it can get really frustrating. Yeah. Um, what about, I know you're not... Um, you didn't kind of find your path to recovery through AA, but what about the one day at a time concept? Is that something that you think is important for someone in recovery is to live one day at a time and not to think that I have to be sober. I, you know, I should be sober for the next 45 years, but I'm going to be sober today. Yes. And where I reinforce that belief is through my practice in mindfulness. Okay. I am also a mindfulness teacher in training. And I was introduced to mindfulness and being in the present moment as I was researching other available tools and options to support my sobriety. So not only one day at a time, literally one moment at a time. So rather than stressing out about tomorrow and, oh my gosh, I'm going out to this dinner, what am I going to order? And working myself into a frenzy, Mm that will take care of itself when it happens. It's helped me being mindful and and implementing mindfulness throughout the course of my day helps me look at micro moments of being grateful. Mm -hmm. Being grateful that I don't have to try and plan my life around drinking. Being thankful that I now have choices to replace alcohol beverages. There is no better time in society to be sober curious, at least, because there's an increasing trend 
toward alcohol-free beverages. I have noticed that. Yes. And that brings up a good point that, and curiosity is one of your values, right? And so for a lot of people, that's probably a value that they align with. And so, yeah, be curious about what your other options are. Right. Because you have options. Yes. People have options. More and more restaurants, uh, a little bit slower. Mocktails. Yes, mocktails, alcohol-free beer. I've had some. They're very good. They are. And more and more places around Iowa, um, more so in the in the larger metropolitan areas across the country, will have beer, will have liquor, will have spirits, will have mocktails available on their menu. I hope and and I'm optimistic that that trend continues mm-hmm. because it really is about inclusion. Mm-hmm. It's about workplaces that don't don't create events around alcohol. It's environments that include everyone for drinking anything that they choose or don't choose to drink. It's equating happy hour with something other than alcohol, or at least offering alternative types of events so that workplaces and teams and communities can truly be inclusive of everyone around their options um, of drinking. Absolutely. So just kind of to wrap this up, what would you, you know, if there's one thing you can share with someone listening who might, you know, think, I want to address my my alcohol consumption, I think it's become problematic or it's affecting my life or my family or my relationships, what would, what would you say to that person? To lean into their values would be the first recommendation. That is... That is the advice that I offer anytime we want to make a change in life, any transition. Because when we do things for the right reasons, when we do things because we know they align with who we are and not just what we think other people tell us we should be, the likelihood of sticking with that choice or that change is exponentially increased. So to understand who I am meaning I know what my values are, then I can navigate all the choices and decisions that I have to make and ensure that I'm moving in the direction that's aligned with my inner compass. So knowing your values is critical. Do you have, and your business is called Mindful Leadership. On your website, do you have a tool or is there anything that people can use or that you recommend they use to identify values? Because that might be, a stumper for some people. Sure. I don't know what my values are. Well, right. Where do I start? How do I, I even identify those? Do you have any resources you recommend? Because I can put them in the show notes. Yes, I do have a tool, okay. and I am happy to offer that as a resource to individuals if they want more of an individual walkthrough. Okay. To be honest, Brene Brown's website, oh, yeah. James Clear's website. So there are resources out there if somebody wants more of a DIY approach to navigating values or aligning values. There are resources available. I also acknowledge that sometimes people want more of a deeper dive. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm available to do that or at least to point someone specifically in a direction if they want more individualized coaching or attention. I, I see myself as, as kind of a... a an advocate or a navigator, You're a some connector. of those resources, yeah. a connector. Yeah. Yes, some of them I'm equipped to offer just through my own certifications, but I've also been intentional about developing my own diverse network of resource providers because I know that it takes more than one solution. It takes more than one pathway for a person to achieve long-term success. 
Well, we, we will link to your website. Uh, what is? Just tell us a little bit about your business because you haven't had an opportunity to share what Mindful sure. Leadership Mindful, does and who you serve. You bet. Mindful Leadership is an individual and organizational leadership development and organizational culture. It really consulting practice. So I consult primarily with larger companies, uh, organizations, um, some nonprofits, as well as the federal government will bring me in to create leadership academy models for them and either facilitate those or train their internal facilitators to develop and deliver their own models. So it's using the, uh, the certified mastery I have in a variety of leadership programs and frameworks and when appropriate, infusing mindfulness and mindful research into those practices so that it really creates a holistic approach to organizational wellness as well as individual leadership and what that individual leader looks like as a whole person. Very interesting. Well, I'm excited to link people back to your website and I have no doubt that this conversation is going to help someone. Good. And that's, I always think if one person's life has changed, it was worth it, right? Absolutely. And so thank you for your vulnerability and sharing your story. And I think, like you said, being transparent about your own experience can really help other people because we need to start talking about this because there are a lot of people that are, you know, living um, their lives in ways that, you know, they, they would want to do better for themselves. They want to feel better. They want to be more connected to themselves, their core values, their families. And so I think the more people can talk about their own life experiences that got them to the place you are today, which it sounds like is a really wonderful place. Thank um, you. Thank you for honoring true your gift. story. Yes. I appreciate that. Yes. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Emotion Well. Please subscribe to us and don't forget to rate us. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Emotion Well is hosted by Johanna Dunlevy and produced by Emily Wancombe.